Head to netsuite.com slash briefing now for their one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. When we talk about wars overseas, the way the U.S. responds really matters. Take a look at Israel. After the deadly Hamas terror attacks on October 7th, President Joe Biden was quick to embrace Israel and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, after two months of war and civilian bloodshed in Gaza, the daylight between the two leaders is growing brighter. This just in a new candid message from President Biden on Israel. At a fundraiser in Washington just a short while ago, Biden told donors that Israel is losing support around the world. Biden told donors that Netanyahu needs to change his tactics. But it's difficult for Netanyahu, according to President Biden, because of his hardline government. But when it comes to the war between Ukraine and Russia, Biden has never wavered. And the U.S. has sent billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine since the war began. Mr. President, I'll not walk away from Ukraine, and neither will the American people. But further aid from the U.S. could be in jeopardy, as some Republicans in Congress say they won't approve more war money until changes are made at the U.S. border with Mexico. No one, no one but Putin wants, wants a prolonged war. We dream of a Christmas in a peacetime, of course. And, and so this week, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky came to Washington, D.C. to plead his case. But remember, despite whatever politics are on display in D.C., there is still a brutal, grinding war going on, a war that Ukraine is definitely not winning. My guest this week is CNN Chief International Security Correspondent Nick Payton Walsh. We're going to talk about the DIY methods Ukraine is turning to to help stem the tide and why this is a moment Russian President Vladimir Putin might be able to seize on. From CNN, this is One Thing. I'm David Rind. Nick, where do I find you in Ukraine today? I'm in Zaporizhia, the city nearest for the summer was kind of the focal point of the counteroffensive. Yeah, and admittedly, we have not covered this war in many months on the show, especially since the war in Israel broke out. And last time we did, Ukraine was gearing up for that big counteroffensive. So can you catch us up briefly on how that has gone? Like, what is the state of play on the battlefield right now? Yeah, look, uh, the war didn't stop just because we weren't paying attention. Mm. It's carried on. And the counteroffensive, the billions of dollars of NATO and American aid were poured into. Look, it hasn't yielded the results that people in Ukraine and far had, had hoped for. There's no way of putting it differently. They simply didn't make the breakthrough down towards the Azov Sea that strategists had planned for. And, you know, that's not something necessarily which anyone's to blame for. I think within the blame game that we've seen playing out in some anonymous officials talking to newspapers and media elsewhere, it's pretty clear that the Americans felt that things could have been done faster, earlier, harder hmm. by Ukraine. And Ukrainians feel, well, you would never even try doing this without air superiority. Right. We didn't have anything like that. So you set us up to fail. Huh. I mean, and this is all playing out as Congress is struggling to come to an agreement over more aid for Ukraine. Republicans largely seem done funding this war. What are the implications of that aid running out? They are absolutely existential for Ukraine as it currently exists as a nation and more broadly for European security. And this 
debate on Capitol Hill, which from you know Zaporizhia, where I am, seems so surreal, so distant, and at times petty, frankly. Yes, US border security is a massive deal for the United States, but so should Ukraine's mm. security and the holding back of a very belligerent, very angry, very aggressive, very amoral Russia. They have made no significant progress despite hundreds of billions of dollars of American aid. Uh, is another $100 billion really going to accomplish anything, or will it take Ukraine further down the pathway of becoming effectively a dependent of the United States of America? My worry here is the country is effectively being destroyed. And so the notion that often is posited by Republicans that, you know, why do we want to get dragged into this conflict, totally misses the point. Quite frankly, we're not going to go help other countries not look at actually what's happening in the United States and the national security risk when we're all keenly aware of the national security risk here as well. The point is that US aid to Ukraine lets Ukraine do the fighting so that Russia is held back. Otherwise, Russia gets up to NATO's borders and that immediately becomes a US problem in Europe. And then American boots are on the ground. Most likely, absolutely, if you know you still believe in NATO. So, Nick, is it really as simple as money runs out, Ukraine loses? Or are there, like, tactical adjustments Ukraine can make on the ground to start turning the tide? Look, we've seen ourselves the ingenuity the Ukrainians have brought to the battlefield here. Frankly, both sides are doing things which months ago were unimaginable. A lot of this is, we saw ourselves, what they're called FPV drones, first-person view drones, gaming headsets, basically, virtual reality headsets huh. used to fly uh, very cheap drones on a one-way ticket straight into Russian positions. Sometimes they're just zip-tied with mortar rounds or RPG rounds to something which probably costs a couple of hundred dollars bought online. That's a Western mortar, mortar round. Yep. Patched together with a very cheap camera that sometimes doesn't even work and they have to switch out. They fly these straight into Russian positions. It's just saying the, the weather's cleared up, the fog was just settled over the river and the Russians are very aware of this threat and you can see them now trying to find a target. They're very accurate, they're pretty deadly, and uh, they're having some effects. But this doesn't win the war. This is a sign of budget ingenuity. Ukrainian units losing or struggling and turning to things that give them an advantage. The Russians are doing it too. It seems one unit said, listen, as soon as we find a new thing that works, uh, the Russians catch us doing it. And then they go and buy all the different components we need en masse mm. from the suppliers that we use and the price trebles. So... The Ukrainians still need this bulk, this sense of money, these real heavy weapons to do the winning. And the things they're finding in the gap are kind of ingenious and stunning and may change the nature of warfare going forwards, even for NATO countries, but mm. are not going to turn the tide right now. Because right, Russia can just keep replenishing and replenishing, whether it's equipment or just bodies. Yeah, look, it's clear from this war that Russia's tolerance for pain Russia's value, frankly, on human life is significantly different to that which Ukraine has. And remember, too, Russia's population is three times Ukraine's size. And so, right. you know, we're seeing now still stories of Russian prisoner units being sent to the front line and their relentless, uh, not appetite, but tolerance 
of thousands of casualties to obtain relatively minor and irrelevant military objectives is so different to Ukraine. And that's the issue going forward, is that Russia is willing to keep going, 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 going with endless patience and tolerance for pain. And while Ukraine slowly sees its Western unity that used to support it ebb. And I have to say, I've two wars here. I've never seen a time quite so bleak as this, particularly right. even before the hijinks in Washington where, you know, Zelensky went on a very high profile visit hoping to turn opinions around. It didn't happen. I'm afraid Ukraine will not be able to stand without our partners and allies. So this is the, as simple as that. Let Ukraine go. If we let Putin win, then who will feel themselves safe here? I think no one. And people were depressed before that. Now, I mean, it's it's a life and death matter here for Ukrainian soldiers we talk to. Uh, it will be very difficult for us to fight without your assistance, but we have no choice. We are ready to put our lives on the table and to stay in position. So they're not going to suddenly you know, go home, but it's a big change. And I realize that Zelensky has said that they're like not at the point where they're going to be sitting down and negotiating any peace with Putin, but that will happen at some point, right? Like that's how wars end. So can you game that out for me? Like what would a conversation with Vladimir Putin about ending the war look like? Well, we know from how Moscow, I'm not sort of saying this subjectively, objectively, historically, you can look at how Russia has used diplomacy, most of the time it is used as a pause to refit their weaponry, to re-equip mm -hmm. their army, or in some cases, like in the more recent 2015 Ukraine peace negotiations, actively pursue military objectives while they're at the negotiating table. So to say that uh, Russia is not a good faith negotiator and the deals with Putin don't hold. Well, Ukraine is an evidence of that. You know, they had treaties and deals here and then Russia invaded again. Um, so, you know, negotiating with Putin is a tough one. So the thinking had always been, we need to put Ukraine into a position. I say we, NATO felt it needed to put Ukraine in a position where it had gained enough militarily on the battlefield that it could negotiate with Putin from a position of strength, from a position in which Russia no longer felt it could militarily alter the reality on the ground and therefore would be accepting a peace that it might actually even have to live with. And instead, we had a counteroffensive that didn't deliver that strategic change of the facts on the ground. Either we will agree on demilitarization, agree on certain parameters, and by the way, during the negotiations in Istanbul, we agreed on them, but then they threw these agreements into the oven, but we had agreed on them. Or there are other possibilities, either to reach an agreement or to resolve it by using force. Of course, all wars end with talking eventually with some sort of arrangement that things are just going to have to be uncomfortable for both sides relatively. And instead now we're at a point where the military change hasn't gone in Ukraine's favour. And instead that notion of, well, isn't there going to be some kind of diplomacy here is beginning to be voiced by more people. Ukraine is adamant against it, uh, possibly because Domestic politics in Ukraine mean that Zelensky can't ask people here to have endured the sacrifice they've endured right. and still essentially see some kind of Russian victory. But, you know, this is going to get harder as aid wavers, as the battlefield looks bleaker, as Russia persists and talks about talks are uh, going to be something we're going to probably hear most and more about next year. Mm. Well, Nick, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys.
One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paolo Ortiz and me, David Rind. Our senior producer is Fez Jamil. Our supervising producer is Greg Peppers. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Dan Zula is our technical director. And Steve Liktai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. We get support from Haley Thomas, Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dionora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jameis Andres, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Namoro. Special thanks to Caroline Patterson, Gold Tayuz, Kristen Strebe, and Katie Hanben. We'll be back next Sunday with another episode. I will talk to you then.